Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. We are recording and it's 2022. How did that happen? This is like so futuristic. Isn't this like a back to the future episode or something? Should I be hanging out with Marty McFly or whatever his name is? In some DeLorean somewhere. (laughs) What fun. Yeah. So yeah, it's time is ticking on. Um, And it's the first of the year. We're all back. Ready to go. Fully charged. Yeah. Well, this year we don't have to talk about hopefully a capital riot um, like we did last year at this time. So, um, but we're 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 starting on in a much more local, a much more upbeat podcast topic, which is our persons of the year. As most people have probably realized by now, we take off the last issue of each year for a well-deserved winter snap, and we focus on people in our community who have done great things in the recent years and decades. So this week we're talking about people who became our person of the year choices. Um, These people have no idea that they are the person of the year until the paper comes out. They think, you know, they don't know. So it's always a surprise. So that's what we're talking about. And with us again this week is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And Catherine G. Manu, aka Georgie, is here again. Hey, Georgie. Hey, happy new year, Annette. I'm Georgie. I am one of the publishers of the Express News Group. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And we also have several people joining us this week who wrote the profiles for our People of the Year. So also with us is the lovely Michelle Trowering. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Annette. I'm Michelle. I'm a Futures Writer with the Express News Group. And Stephen Coates. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. Okay. Lots to say from Steve. And Kaylin Riley. Hi, Kaylin. Hi, Annette. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm always happy to be here on the podcast. And also Desiree Keegan is here as well. Hey, Desiree. Hey, how are you? Good. So uh, maybe maybe we should do this from west to east. What do you guys think? Because we pick a different person in each part of the east end of the coverage area of our four papers. So the first person that we will talk about then is Lars Clemenson. And Lars is the superintendent of Hampton Bay School. And Lars, uh, Lars was your topic, right, Desiree? Yes. Yes. So um, we've had Lars on before for other to other podcasts, and he's just great. He just is a really awesome guy. And I can imagine that the students at Hampton Bays really love having him as their superintendent. He just seems like a really fun and very cool leader of that school district. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you learned about Lars during your exploration of this story. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, like you said, all the students love him. Uh, basically, everyone in the entire community loves him, though. Um, I, you know, that uh, six degrees of separation rule, you know, the idea that, you know, all people are connected by six or fewer people. Um, with Lars, that six degrees is one, especially in Hampton Bays. Everyone knows him. Um, top to bottom, everyone loves him. I could not believe how many people had so many nice things to say about him. Um it was crazy because every person that I spoke to gave me five, six, seven more people. Oh, you should talk to this person and this person and this person and this person, because he's literally worked with everyone. Um, 
So to give you a little bit of a backstory about um, Lars, he lived in Hampton Bays actually until eighth grade and moved to Texas where he graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a Bachelor of Arts in American Studies and Government, went to Seton Hall University and got a master's in educational leadership. Um, He was actually a legislative assistant for the Texas House of Representatives and the Texas Senate um, before he began working at a Teach for America which is a nonprofit um, based in New Jersey. He worked um, his way up to being a um, executive director of the Newark and Camden location. Um, So he was hired um, in 2006 to be the Hampton Bay's um, middle school principal. And this was actually before the um, building was even built. So he literally built it from the ground up, built all the programs, hired everyone there. So what I thought was interesting, something that I didn't know, was that he actually became um, superintendent in 2010. And at least at the time, um, everyone thinks it's still the case. He was most likely the youngest superintendent ever um, in all of New York State. Really? Um, I thought that that was pretty interesting. How old was he? Do you remember how old? Did he say how old he was then? Uh, Yeah, he was like 30. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, he was hired a principal at what, 26 or something like that. That was, yeah, 2006, four years before. So um, he worked his way up very, very fast, Um, obviously impressed a lot of people, um, you know, at his age. But what I thought was interesting was a lot of the people that I spoke with, um, for instance, one of his really good friends name is Ken Bossert. I don't know if anyone is familiar with him, but he is the superintendent at the Elwood School District. So Elwood, John Glenn is the high school there, if anyone knows that high school. So they were hired um, to be superintendents at the same time, and they became really close friends. And one of the things that um, I really liked that he said, which I thought was pretty fitting after, you know, speaking with everyone, is he basically called him the honorary mayor of Hampton Bays. And he said that he jokes around with him about that all the time because of how involved he is, not just in the school district, but the community. And I think one thing that's interesting about Lars is, how connected he is to the community because he lives there. Not every superintendent lives, most of them don't, in the community that they serve. So I think what's interesting with him is he has been um, part of the library. He's been you know, the vice president of the Rotary Club, and he has really kind of intertwined himself with everything and everyone there because he's not only focused on the kids and making the school district better and moving, you know, the educational aspects of the district forward, but he really wants to better the entire community. I think that's what, what made him a great person of the year, um, you know, for, for the Express News group yeah. is, is, is he's not just pigeonholed in his position in the school district. He's, he's just really this community leader that um, you know, that, that is just an integral part of, of Hampton Bays right now. Yeah, I think it's unusual to have it, like you said, had a super, have mm-hmm. a superintendent that actually lives in the district and knows it that well. I mean, superintendents are notoriously, um, move around quite a lot. You know, I know that, you know, it seems like they come and go, you know, like mm-hmm. munchkins and the land of Oz sometimes, because they just blow in and then three years later, they're out again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of a rarity too, that, that you have a superintendent that, and, and, and Lars was was really instrumental, I think, across the whole East End and maybe even in, in the state in his leadership during COVID, Desiree. I mean, isn't that correct? He was mm-hmm. just he, he really had his, his um, 
foot on the on, feet on the ground with that and, and leading both the district and was involved in, in state leadership as well. Yeah, so um, that was one thing that was interesting in talking with a lot of people and um, with state assemblyman Fred Thiel was that he really started a lot of what other districts followed. You know, he began testing, he began offering, um, you know, the middle school as like a vaccine pod, which is a point of disposal, you know, to get more people vaccinated. He um, basically set up a lot of the guidelines that a lot of the other districts ended up following, whether it be, you know, plexiglass, whatever it was. And he connected himself with um, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital and a lot of people there and some local pediatricians um, to really figure out what was going to be, you know, the best ways to, to keep kids safe. And, and it ended up that, you know, a lot of other districts followed suit because of what he started. I also wonder if there's like less pushback from parents and community members on COVID protocol measures when they're coming from somebody who's so well-known and trusted in the community, you know, because it does seem like there's been a lot of backlash at other, at other school districts about some of this stuff, so. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the summer of, um, I guess it was summer of 2020, God, it's, I can't believe how long we've been doing this, um, but <laughs> I remember we did a um, virtual express sessions, um, basically with like school leadership, and we were from across the South Fork, kind of talking about the reopening of schools and how does this work? And, you know, as a parent and as a community member and as a journalist, there were so many question marks that all of us had, like, we didn't know how it was going to go. Was it everybody going to get sick and it was going to shut down? And I do remember I hadn't had much time, um, you know, with Lars, I've, I've mostly worked in East Hampton and Sag Harbor in my journalism career, but I walked away from that session <laughs> feeling like, if Lars could just kind of make the, you know, blanket protocols for the whole South Fork, I was going to feel really comfortable sending my kids to school because he just had such a command and like such an understanding and very clear ideas of what he thought the best path forward was that, you know, there was a confidence, um, but not an arrogant confidence, like an educated confidence about what he was saying that made me feel a lot more comfortable. So I was super impressed with him straight off the bat. And that was, uh, you know, something that uh, Ken Bossard actually said to me, too, which I thought was kind of funny, was apparently uh, Lars and Ken and a few of the other um, superintendents who became superintendents around the same time, they're all very close friends. They have this thing um, called like the brain trust is what they call it. And it's a bunch of superintendents on, you know, one of those um, like text, you know, groups or whatever. And they all bounce ideas off of each other every single day, all week. So if there's ever any new guidance, any new protocols, whatever it may be, not just with COVID, but with everything, um, they're constantly just kind of like sharing ideas. And a lot of the time, Ken looks to Lars for advice. And what's funny is he said that, you know, besides them becoming good friends, he kind of looks to Lars as a mentor. And, and Lars is probably a, a good 25 years younger than he is. So I thought that that was, that yeah. says a lot. Yeah, it really yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, he knows everything about everything. I mean, Fred Thiel, you know, even even jokes that, you know, one day, um, what's the uh, position that he said? He'll be the state commissioner of education is what he believes Lars will be one day. Um, he would be really good at it. <laughs> if not governor. Well, and they, him and his wife, baby in the middle of all of this. Yeah, and that's, well, that's right? one thing, too. So I was, you know, trying to find information, just, you know, other people to talk to, uh, you know, 
just looking up some background. So Lars is really big with social media, which I thought was kind of interesting too, because, you know, a lot of school districts in general don't really utilize social media the way that they could or should. And he is always on Facebook and Twitter and he shares everything. So he was in the middle of making a um, budget presentation like slideshow with his um, daughter on his lap, like his, his baby newborn, you know, like that's, that's the kind of person that he is. Don't we love to see a dad multitasking with a kid on their lap? I mean, I like, amen to that. (laughs) And um, I thought that he used um, social media really well, even during the shutdown too, because there were clips of him, you know, reading books to kids. He would frequently join in on like zoom classes with teachers just to kind of pop in, say, Hey, see how everyone was doing. He had these nightly like bedtime readings that he did on Facebook. He would live stream and stuff. So I just thought that the way that he connected to the kids was really great. I mean, most, I don't, I don't remember my superintendent's name, but I feel like everybody. Yeah. Had- not only, not only that, but like you said, you know, like, yeah, having like a, a male, a male figure, especially for littler kids. Cause I think that most of my friends who have boys just lament like during elementary school that there really aren't that many male teachers for them mm-hmm. to look up to. Like you used to get a lot more male teachers in middle and high school, but for the little, little guys, they don't have a lot of, a lot of male energy in elementary schools, at least they didn't in the past. So I imagine that Lars is a really good thing for them. Yeah. Well, and I can attest his wife is also a beloved educator because she is the music teacher at the East Quag school where my children go. And she's of course had been on maternity leave for a very long time. And they were counting down the days until she came back and say, Mrs. Clemenson's coming back soon. They were very excited. And she did like a really incredible um, morning music show. And when, you know, they were remote in the spring of 2020. So there's just like a real education power couple seems like. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say something, um, you know, cute, just kind of like as a side note off of that, too, was um, so their um, wedding song, their their dance was to a Michael Franti song. And for their anniversary recently, he had Michael Franti come on the morning music show to surprise her, which I thought was really sweet. Wow. (laughs) He's got some pull, man. I see. I see a higher (laughs) office. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. All right. All right. Well, that was fun. Lars is great we really love him and have more opportunity to get him on the show in the future um so then so we're going to move a little bit further east um to the shinnecock nation and we're going to talk about brian polite who is the chairman of the shinnecock nation and um and brian's a really interesting guy i met him um at a little restaurant that he owns um in uh, on the shinnecock um reservation and um just a really nice guy young a young um leader for the for the nation, which I think is, you know, a lot of good en- new energy and a lot going on over there. So Kaylin, I uh, wondered if you could talk a little bit about Brian and sort of what you have uncovered about him and your research for this story. Sure. I'd love to. So it's always uh, like joy and privilege to interview Brian. He's so great, engaging. I've written about him twice now. Um, I wrote a profile of him for an issue of the Express Magazine where where I did a couple different profiles of young Shinnecock leaders, because there's really been um, a nice, like, you know, 
surge of young people on the reservation, men and women who are doing a lot of really incredible things there and, you know, bringing the nation into, into more modern times with some of the initiatives and the energy they have. Um, but he's great. I mean, when you, when you speak to people about Brian, the thing that keeps coming up over and over, whether it's someone who's like Kelly Dennis, who's a fellow uh, tribal trustee member, or if it's, you know, someone like Jay Schneiderman across the board, people from all different walks of life that know him for different reasons. They just always say he listens. And that's just like simple, but so essential to being a good leader. You know, he, to me, he's got, he's in the newspaper constantly and not just locally. I mean, he was featured on this, this um, segment they did on the daily show with Trevor Noah. So he's, you know, he's been out there like in nationwide media. He doesn't seem to have an ego about it. If anything, he's just maintains being humble and he really just cares about his fellow tribal members and, and he puts that care into action. In December, early December, he put together um, a mass testing effort on the reservation and he was there like literally hand to hand distributing PPE to other tribal members and community members, you know, so he's the kind of person who is like on the ground doing the things that need to get done but then also, you know, leading so many different initiatives that the tribe has going on from, you know, medical marijuana dispensary plans to obviously the casino plans, just so many different things. He's got a lot of balls in the air and he really seems to handle it with grace and humility. And he takes, you know, other people's thoughts and, and feelings into account while at the same time being a fierce advocate for for the tribe and it's not an easy balance, but he seems to, to be really well equipped to, to do that. I was just curious how old Brian is and what his background is. So he's turning 40 in July, but he has spent like all of his thirties in tribal leadership. And he, you know, and he really, he got that heart for service from his mother who was very involved in, in tribal politics. And he would watch, you know, her come home from meetings. She was very instrumental in bringing tribal elections back to the tribe. They used to have to go into Southampton village to vote, which is ridiculous, but now they're able to have, they've been able to have their elections on their land. And that's something that his mom really worked on, but he has a really interesting background. I mean, he went to John Jay college, um, he thought he was going to be a police officer and he went through um, police academy and he worked in um, in the police academy in uh, Nashantucket um, under the guidance of his uncle, Dan Collins. And, um, you know, that was something he did for a while. Then he got into, you know, the horticulture business. He had a greenhouse horticulture business. He helped his mom run the cafe. So he's done like a lot of different things. And he has this very cool plan for the future as well, where he wants to have, um, he loves to snowboard and goes to Vermont a lot. And he has this sort of plan or vision for the future where he would, um, he would have some sort of like a Airbnb or VRBO kind of situation, but that really ties into like Native American culture and people could come rent, mm. you know, rent someplace the decor, but there would also be some 
sort of educational experience to it where people would learn about, you know, Native American and indigenous culture, which I thought sounded like just a really very cool idea. It sounds like he's the right guy for the right time too, given all that the nation has coming up and that they, he, they really need somebody who can be the face of the nation right now as they're right. maneuvering through all of these many um, hurdles. It's really a renaissance right now on the territory with just all of the, yeah. uh, all of the, all of the uh, things that they've got going on, all the different economic, um, you know, things to, to help the tribe members, the casino coming up and, and gas station and um, mm. the, you know, the cannabis thing and just everything that, that you, you see this, this spark in the leadership that, um, that, that maybe wasn't there a few years ago. And I think Brian has a lot to do with it, certainly him and the, and the people around him, but he's really leading that charge um, to, to improve conditions. Yeah, and it's, and it's a lot. It's a lot of things to go to, to be dealing with at once. And I sort of was talking to him about, you know, what it's like to manage all of that because it's just a lot of balls in the air. And I'm sure that can be stressful and, and challenging. But he actually said, you know, that he likes it because it, it means that there's that you're, you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket and exactly. hoping that this, that this one thing comes to pass. And if it doesn't, you've got to just go back to the drawing drawing board all over again. I think for, for a long time and, and for a decade maybe or more, it was just that. It was, you know, mm -hmm. tribe members were putting um, a lot of energy and a lot of work and a lot of blood, sweat and tears into the idea of the casino, um, you know, and, and there wasn't room for, for anything else. And, and right now they've mm -hmm. figured out that if they, if they divvy up, you know, those responsibilities, if, if one thing doesn't work out, if the casino doesn't work out or something else doesn't work out, right. then you've got these other economic drivers to, to help the tribe. Right. And now you've got like Southampton town, maybe opting into the marijuana retail sales, but no other areas except them, except maybe Riverhead seem to be. So that might be a huge boon for them going forward because a lot of other sure. municipalities out here have already decided they're opting out on that for now. So He's just someone that seems to operate in good faith with everyone, you know, like Fred Thiel called him a consensus builder, not a, not a, not someone who divides or polarizes people. He's really, you know, and, and even while admitting that there's been things that they don't agree on or see eye to eye on you, you it's someone you feel like you can, you know, negotiate in good faith with and really, but he's also, you know, a big student of history and he is a, a fierce defender of the of the nation's interests. So I just think it's very interesting how he has really been able to walk that very hard line between being a fierce and an unwavering advocate for his people, but not, but also not like burning bridges or or alienating um, leaders in local government. And and you see that with with the recent graves protection. Um, legislation that that Southampton Town has has enacted mm -hmm. that <clears throat> that in partnership with with the tribe rather than there being an adversarial relationship. Finally, I, I mean, I I wrote about graves protection stuff twenty five years ago. You know, when I was a young reporter, and nothing ever became of it. Mm -hmm. But now, because there's this better relationship, um, okay. you know, between the between the tribe and and town and like you said local municipalities and Fred Thiel and I think a lot of that is is um, is is directly related to, to Brian's leadership yes, there it is yeah well but, a cliche you know it's a cliche but he is wise beyond his years kind of like Lars 
Great. So we're going to move a little bit further east now to Sag Harbor and have Steve talk a little bit about Duncan Darrow, who is the founder of Fighting Chance, which is a cancer resource center based in Sag Harbor. So Steve, I wonder if you could share a little bit about Duncan and what are some of the surprises that you unearthed during your research? Well, the first thing I learned about Duncan Darrow was that he was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he came east because he played hockey really? at Columbia. Wow, that's a surprise. I, I do not, I don't, you don't look at Duncan Darrow with his cornroom glasses and his, uh, you know, his, his quiet demeanor as being a guy who would check you down in the back behind the net. But he's, I played hockey um, and he actually played hockey uh, as a, an adult at the, at the Buckskill Winter Club where they set up a hockey rink every year. And there was a, there's a team of older players called the Hackers. And he apparently played uh, in what was supposed to be no check, you know, no, you know, no contact hockey, but he managed, he managed to break his hip. So that ended his hockey. Whoa. Oh no. So don't <laughs> challenge junk into a hockey match because you might end up uh, missing a tooth or two, I'm guessing. I, I guess. Yeah. But um, he, he, he's one of these guys um, who he's a you know, semi-retired wall street attorney um, that in itself is another interesting facet of him. He, he his specialty was distressed debt, um, and one of the things that he he's worked on uh, is when countries you might remember going back to the 1990s, and I think it was Thailand first that their currency collapsed, and there's been all these serious uh, uh, currencies that have there was a Mexican currency crisis, and he's he would go around the world and counsel governments and, and, and banks and all as to how they would get out of the mess uh, that's created when, when, you're, when your currency is worth 10% of what it was wow. a week earlier. And obviously, you know, that was, you know, it's, it's a well-paying uh, um, type job. And he, one of the things he did when he, after he started fighting chance is he would, he was semi-retired and he would work for people but part of his retainer was that you had to first make a sizable donation to Fighting Chance, and then he would then he would look at your books and see if he could help you. <laughs> but first things first. Wow. Well, I think what I remember I remember when um, when Duncan started Fighting Chance because he was actually um, the office first was in this little shed behind the Romney Cremoris Gallery, next to the Express. Yeah, I remember that's like, because we were the next door neighbors. Um, and um, yeah, it was this tiny little operation. But I think what I remember, the thing that was interesting is that Duncan wanted to start Fighting Chance because his own mother was going through a cancer diagnosis and he just could not find any resources. Like once you get the cancer diagnosis, what do you do? And exactly. he didn't know yeah. what to do and there was nowhere to go. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a little yeah. about the founding of the organization and sort of what it does. His mother was diagnosed with lung cancer and... Um... They were slammed by it, of course. Like I think everyone, anyone who, who's ever experienced cancer in their family knows that it's um, probably the most frightening thing that could happen. I mean, I think you know, I can, you know, uh, other than the fact that you sent your child to school maybe and lost your child to a school shooting, I can't think of anything worse than dealing with cancer. And um, so what he did is he first he, he you know he. His mother only lived about three months after being diagnosed, and and it was it was a, a, a trying time for the family and for him. And he 
he trained with East End Hospice and he, he, he was not really happy training to sit with people who were sleeping most of the day as they were dying. And he thought he could do more work if he, if better work, if he could help people who had just been diagnosed with cancer. So he just started to gather information. He got together some money, um, pulled together a couple of people and they, they produced a little, a little pamphlet, which gave telephone numbers for, you know, for doctors and for hospitals, uh, support groups. Um, and, you know, he, he, he says that the organization really kind of got, um, you know, it was doing fine for a couple of years, but it really got a, a kickstart when this woman, Carrie Robinson, who had worked um, at Sloan Kettering in the city and had moved to the East End with her husband, lived on the North Fork, and she got wind of what they were doing. And she came in and said, well, you know, this is terrific, but what about counseling services? You know, people who are depressed, people are, they're, they're, they're anxious. Um, they're suffering all sorts of other issues. And he, he's got a funny thing in the, in the, in the profile. He, you know, he, he asked if she would join their, the, you know, the, the uh, fighting chance. And she said, um, you don't even have a bathroom. And he responded, but I have a dream. And <laughs> she came on, they started to launch these counseling services. And, and, and I, th I think before I forget, I mean, this is all free. So, yeah. um, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, a working class, middle-class person and you, and you, you know, and you, you, maybe you've got, maybe you've got terrific insurance, but you, you know, you still have to get into the city to, to go to appointments. You still have to, um, you know, make ends meet uh, um, and, and they provide all sorts of help. I mean, They've got a deal with the Hampton Jitney where they buy X number of Jitney tickets uh, and, and the Jitney sells them for half price. And then they give them the people who have to go into the city for, for appointments. They've got a deal with hometown taxi uh, where if you need to you know, go to an appointment and you don't have a car, whatever, you, you call a cab and they will get you to your appointment. So they just do all sorts of good things for people who have cancer. Fantastic. And I think also it's really important to note that like when Fighting Chance was founded, like the Phillips Cancer Center wasn't even like a glimmer in anybody's eye. Like there were in so many ways on the South Fork and the East End of Long Island, um, you know, when you look back 20 years and even 10 years, you know, we are in like a little bit of a desert when yeah. it comes to certain services, yeah. um, especially medical services where, you know, you have to travel, you know, to Riverhead or the city or beyond to get the kind of care that you want. Um, and, you know, certainly these kinds of support services, you know, were basically non-existent out here. Um, you would have to have gone to Sloan Kettering to get, you know, any sort of support services like that. And that's a big trek for people and a big stress for people that, you know, their only options are to get into the city. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was so it was so long ago that he started um, fighting chance. And I mean, when you think about the number of lives, not just people fighting cancer, but their families who can also get counseling services through that nonprofit, you know, the number of people that that organization has impacted locally is tremendous. I think one of the most important things too, is just that it's not even so much, oh, now I have to go in the city and deal with this. It's almost like you don't know what to do. And there was no guidance on what to do. And that was, I think, I think is the most paralyzing 
fear in the face of that kind of diagnosis as you come home and you don't know what to do next. So I feel like fighting chances become really a very comforting place. As soon as people are diagnosed, they can call them and they're like, okay, come in and we'll talk to you. You know, they'll walk them through the steps of what they have to do, not only in terms of getting the physical treatment, but also the emotional treatment. Um, but that's, I think, you know, one of the scariest things, or even maybe just navigating the insurance issues. And can you imagine being really sick with cancer and having to deal with some of the insurance oh, God, yeah. paperwork that comes up in the fighting of claims and that sort of thing. I mean, they, they, they do so much stuff. It's hard to, 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 to summarize it, but for instance, you know, they have people who will help you navigate your healthcare. How, how, you know, how do I set this up? How do I, you know, what do I do after we've done that? I mean, and um, just stuff that you and I are, you wouldn't want to face it alone. So I wondered, Steve, did he talk at, at all about progresses that have made been made in treating cancers? Like, you know, do we, it, it used to be that cancer was a, was an absolute death sentence, you know? Well, death sentence, right? You it used to be a yeah. cancer victim. We used to be the expression and now they talk about cancer survivors. And there's, I mean, the advances are, are, you know, are, are incredible. Um, I, I, I am not, equipped to talk about the different things. I don't understand any of it, but, you know, uh, immunotherapy and stuff like that. I mean, you know, once upon a time, you, you, you would have surgery, uh, and then you might have chemo, you might have radiation. And, um, you know, now there are just all sorts of things that are developing. And I, I'm, I'm quite frank, I'm not equipped to, to, to discuss them with any you know, degree of intelligence, but, you know, they're, um, one of the things that, that that Fighting Chance does, though, is they host lectures and they they have they'll host film screens, um, you know, where you can learn about what's new, what's coming down the horizon. And, uh, you know, and another thing that Duncan himself is doing is he's also investing in helping come up with new cures, uh, which, you know, again, which is stuff that um, is, is beyond my pay grade. I'm a liberal arts student. Yeah, I think they also have really interesting support groups too, like write, like you can come and write about your experiences or, you know, I've heard they've had some really, you know, where you can um, gather with other cancer survivors and sort of share your experiences through a creative outlet, you know. Just going back to the, you know, advancement part, I, I read Steve's um, Person of the Year story, of course, and um and one of the things that Duncan kind of closes with um, is that it's his hope that in his lifetime, um, you know, instead of, you know, being a death sentence, you know, cancer is something that, you know, you get and you treat and you're better and that's expected, um, you know, and he was like, gosh, if that happens by the time I'm 90, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You know, or it's just it goes from being, yeah goes from being a, a, a you know, a, a terminal disease to a chronic disease. Yeah, exactly. That's what he said. He said a chronic um, disease. And I thought that was, I was like, wow, that's amazing that, you know, think about how far we've come in just the last decade that you could even make that kind of statement is kind of amazing. And it's because of people like Duncan. Right. And I, this has nothing to do with fighting chance per se, but I have personally, I've, I've met a number of people with the type of cancer, a first of all, that they've gotten it younger than they should have gotten it, um, but that they are being given a very good prognosis by their physicians, and that alone, you know, is another thing. I mean, it sort of all dovetails with this: is that 
there is hope. And I think uh, another thing about Duncan is that he, of course, <laughs> he's always he's always looking for money. So he has to come up with new ways to to do fundraisers. And of course, it, you know, they've got the big gala, which is often been at the um, at the Maidstone Club. And if it's not the Maidstone Club, it's usually it's been over at um, uh, Devon Yacht Club. And last year with COVID, he said, well, you know, we need some kind of an activity that can get people outside where they don't have to sit close. To. So they came up with this idea of having a regatta, as it were, sort of a, sort of a boat tour. They, they went around Shelter Island, got a bunch of people who owned powerboats to, to um, host half dozen to you know, 10 people. And he's just always doing things like that. He's always sort of hustling, looking for a new, a new way to, 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 you know, to expand the program. Um, I'm, I'm sure that he, he's in the hair of the people who run the office because he's very hands-on and, um, and just like full of energy and full of ideas. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website. Southampton SagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Last but not least is Michelle Trowering, who's going to talk about our beloved Hugh King, who is the town crier and histor- a historian in East Hampton um, Village. But I think he also has a big Springs connection as well, if I remember correctly. Um, so Michelle and Georgie, I think you can both probably speak to Hugh because he's been in um, in Georgie's life for quite a while, I believe. And Michelle, I'm sure you got to know quite a bit about him. I did. I actually had never spoken with Hugh before I hopped on the phone with him. And let me tell you, I felt extremely guilty lying to this man about the story that I was writing. <laughs> like anyone who has spoken with Hugh, what a legend, what a sweet, sweet soul. He just turned 80 last month. And, you know, we hopped on our call and it just turned into this like winding, beautiful conversation about his life and history on the East End um, that left me kind of speechless. He's done so much. So not only is he the historian for East Hampton Village, but he's also the historian for the town and he's the town crier, which is a position that he's held since 1987. And he, when he accepted it, he didn't know really much about East Hampton Town or Village. So he started um, diving into the trustee records and the town records, and he's been educating himself ever since all on his own um, to become someone whose, you know, knowledge of East Hampton is virtually unmatched. I, you know, but I just, I just want to see him out on the street corner in the snow, like, hear ye, hear ye, and reading from some pamphlet. I mean, you can. I mean, all it, of the it villages happens out here. all the time, you know. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> it does. I just, I think, I don't know why all the villages don't have a town crier. I just think that would be so cool. Uh, does he ever do that? Did he say that? I've never seen it, but does he actually get out there and 
crawling well, I know, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. think it's East Hampton Town um, supervisor, Peter Van Skoyak, who said that he's something out of a Dickens novel when he really gets into his whole thing with the hat and the cape and the bell, you know, goes to Christmas past kind of stuff. Yeah. Hearing, hearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could find Hugh at like, you know, like the Christmas parade that they had in East Hampton. He's usually a part of that. But then he's done tours through the Historical Society. First off, he and his wife, um, Loretta, have for a long time run, you know, the Mulford Farm um, historic property there. She was very much involved in the restoration of um, the gardens at Mulford Farm, um, which is, they're totally gorgeous. Oh. I highly recommend checking them out. Are you sure uh, it wasn't Home Sweet Home, Georgie? It is oh, you're right. Home. I'm sorry. Not Mulford Home Sweet Home. Home. You're right. It's not Mulford Farm. It's Home Sweet Home. They're right next to each other and they're identical buildings. So you can understand yes, exactly. why I got them confused. But, um, you know, you could, he also has done like, you know, graveyard tours, um, tours at um, Clinton Academy and like the little old schoolhouse that's right next to Clinton Academy. Um, so he's, you know, been out there. And then he does these presentations at town board meetings where he talks about local history, which Michelle touched on in her story. Right. And I asked him, you know, what is it about history that fascinates you? Why have you devoted your life to this in particular? And he said that it's all about the cyclical nature of it. And so just when you think that something is new, chances are it isn't. And if you just go back and look at how people dealt with those same problems, you know, it could really help us today. And that's really what he brings to East Hampton town board. You know, if they're trying to make a decision about a particularly controversial subject, he's the first to stand up and say, Hey, actually, you know, there was a land dispute just about like, like this 200 years ago, let's learn about it. And let's see what we can tap from that and bring it forward to today. I wonder, I wonder if the town board has had any like witch trials, like he mentioned from the from the goody garlic day <laughs> don't give them any ideas well interestingly enough his wife loretta actually studied and was a scholar in like you know wiccan lore and culture and her books are all about um what like witchcraft um and the history of that so it's kind of interesting you bring that up because yes i'm sure he knows everything about that yeah he actually did a, a witch conference one time i went it was fascinating he brought somebody down from connecticut who was a scholar on witchcraft in um like all of um new england in the 1600s and just sort of got into the whole the trial of goody garlic who was our one famous witch right. who was tried yeah. in hartford connecticut before salem massachusetts that's how long ago it was but it was really interesting because they got into the whole idea of like older women who were who were um you know past childbearing years um if they were like especially if they didn't have a husband mm. were particularly vulnerable to being accused of witchcraft because they they didn't have any protectors but goody garlic everyone would happen to know she was ended ended up getting out of the the witch, witchcraft charges because she was unusual and <laughs> that she was married and had a husband who supported her and, and it all turned out okay for her but really fascinating times about um how women were vilified based on their social status and really fascinating. Yeah. So. He, he also talked to me about kind of the scapegoating nature of those times and how that has been brought forward to today. This conversation mm -hmm. we had was very much sprinkled with these little history lessons, which I appreciated definitely. And you could also tell that he, he was a teacher and um, that was a position that he held at spring school for 31 years. Yep. You know, I mean, he's, he is a community treasure, that man, he is a legend. Um, but Georgie, you were telling me that he taught one of your favorite classes. 
Yeah. So, so I've known Hugh since I was super little because my dad, Jack Graves and my mom, uh, Mary were very close with Hugh and Loretta, my dad, Jack and Hugh share a passion for baseball. Hugh has this whole room in his house. That's like dedicated to baseball. Like I remember as a kid, like he had like every baseball hat you could imagine. And it was just like this incredible room. You couldn't believe it. Um, so I've known him for a long time, but he was also my teacher at spring school and he taught, um, in the, he taught the gifted and talented program, um, which I was fortunate enough to be a part of, but then he also in the seventh and eighth grade, um, he started a class. I don't know how long it ran, but it ran when I was there called history of Springs. And it was like a, like a 45 minute class at the end of the day. And we would sit with Hugh and we would learn about the history of spring. So like we learned about like the free life. Like I, you know, I would never have known about this like fatal balloon accident that, you know, was this like, you know, major news story that was born in, you know, my own backyard and, you know, talked to us about the history of artists. And, you know, we just learned so much about this community that we lived in. And, you know, we were in seventh and eighth grade. So we were like, 12 and 13. So, you know, there was, I'm sure many of us that were like, oh, why do we have to learn about the history of Springs? But I mean, I remember, I remember that class to this day as being like really important, um, you know, for me and, and, and in my own life and deciding that I wanted to learn about this place that, you know, I've grown up in and called home. So um, that was a really big impact. He was also um, a phenomenal actor Right. Um, he was in local theater. He was like in all of these productions, um, you know, whether it was at like Abram theater in Southampton, he was a part of the guild hall players. And he was also the theater, um, instructor along with my other favorite teacher, Ruth Philly, who Michelle got to talk to. And I'm really jealous about that. She was so <laughs> amazing. She was social studies teacher and they were like best friends and they did the theater program. Um, and it was an amazing little theater program for this tiny little school in East Hampton. So what brought Hugh to East Hampton in the first place? Did he grow up on the East Coast or in East Hampton? So he was actually born in Brooklyn in 1941, uh, which is where his mom lived. And so they stayed there until he was six. But his dad was Boniker and he was kind of he had some itchy feet and he was ready to come back out east. So they did. Um, they came out to Amagansett. Uh, Hugh still lives in his childhood home there, wow. which is amazing. The house is over a hundred years old. Uh, and, you know, he had this very idyllic childhood. Um, he joined the Amagansett Little League team and they won the championship in 1954. Uh, it was their inaugural season. He just has these like really delightful memories um, of, of being here. And he's actually the 13th or 14th generation of kings on the east end and that was that was the first question I asked him about you know can you tell me a little bit more about that and he's like oh you know actually I'd kind of rather not he he can't stand when you know people brag about their ancestry in a certain place to his point you know you don't know if they're if they were scoundrels or crooks and so he was very <laughs> reticent to be like you know that these are who my ancestors were kind of a thing. He's like, I just, you know, I'd rather not. He's also just like, I mean, I got to say, he's just a sweetheart of a guy, you know, yeah. like he just like has this wistful voice, you know, part of it I'm sure is like his theater training or what I'm being a school teacher for so long, but 
you know, he's just somebody like Michelle said, you just like, you start talking to him and you kind of just like, don't want that conversation to maybe end because he's got so many interesting things to say to you. Go, go visit home, sweet home. Go visit home, sweet home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. He just, you know, he immediately makes you feel like you're his friend. Just straight out of the gate. Uh, he was actually sitting in the aforementioned baseball room when we were chatting. So I had him kind of describe his surroundings and sure enough, it is still like deck to the nines. It is, it is unbelievable. He has a TV <laughs> dedicated to watching baseball. He just loves it. He loves the whole sport. <laughs> I didn't know that about Hugh King. So now I do. So. Well, next time he gives a, a, a tour in East Hampton, you guys should all make a point to get down there and tag along. So I think we covered our four people of the year from West to East. That was fun. How lucky are we that we have these people, you know, in our little communities, you know, that, that really make them better places, you know, and that's, I think what the person of the year for me always is about is finding those people that, you know, are improving um, this place that we all call home. And every year it's like a new batch and we don't seem to run, run out of them either. Do we? Congratulations to them all. Yeah. And all of you for writing about them. Much appreciated. They were some of my favorite profiles. Um, my favorite people of the year profiles that I've read in like what, 10 years, um, you know, they were just really well done and really great profiles for really great people. So happy new year, everyone. Happy new year. Happy new year. Fingers crossed for 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say how worse could it get, but then, you know, 2021 was... Don't say it. No sudden movements. Maybe maybe it won't notice we're here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is that camo you're wearing? <laughs> Is it a thunder shirt? All right, so we're slowly backing out of the room. Good seeing y'all. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.